you probably recognize this melody. It's John Williams's theme to Harry Potter. It may be the most recognizable movie music since Star Wars. Harry Potter is to books what Star Wars is to movies. Not just a blockbuster, but a defining event, a game changer. When it was first published 20 years ago, there'd never been anything like it. It permanently reset the expectations about what a kid's book could do. It is Potter mania. Thousands of fans are lining up as we speak, anxiously waiting to get their hands on that final Harry Potter book. The Barnes and Noble on Wolf Road turned into Hogwarts. I'm wearing the Gryffindor robe. The Potter series has sold 325 million copies in 64 languages. In this episode, we're going to talk about Harry Potter and how, for better or worse, my book will be living in its shadow. Right now, two weeks before it comes out, Expectations for Arlo Finch are high, but are they too high? You know, just reading it for me, it was like this experience of feeling like this is the American version of what Harry Potter was for Brits. Everybody wants the next Harry Potter. You don't even need to say that. So did I write the next Harry Potter? Or did I write yet another kid's book hoping to be the next Harry Potter? Either way, it's Harry's world. I better get used to it. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From Wondery, this is Launch, a show about making new things and dealing with comparisons to a certain boy wizard. I'm John August. So, in the last episode, I'd written six chapters of a book called Arlo Finch in the Valley of Fire. It's about a kid who joins a scouting troop in the mountains of Colorado and discovers the woods outside his town are magic. Off those chapters, I'd gotten a prestigious agent named Jody Reamer. She'd sent my chapters out to the major publishers, and we were hoping at least one of them would make an offer. Something like, we'll pay you a certain amount of money for the right to publish your book. How much money? Well, not a lot by Hollywood standards, but If more than one publisher wants the book, Jody says they might start bidding against each other. That's the hope. But first, they have to read it. Days pass. No word. Finally, I get an email from Jody. Call her. So I do. 
Jody, it's John. How are you? Very, very well. Sorry about the oh. delay. Oh, not a problem at all. It's perfect timing. We've got an offer from Macmillan with the catch. It's preemptive. 24 hours, take it or leave it. They want Arlo Finch, but they don't want to get into a bidding war. Jody had warned me this might happen. Macmillan is very good at what they do, so I'm always looking for the editor who gets it, because then I know they're going to be your in-house cheerleader, and they're going to be really excited, and they're going to make sure that sales, marketing, publicity gets truly behind it. I also know Connie quite well, so I know what a fantastic editor she is. I knew how perfect she'd be for you if she got it, and she did. So that's when I thought, okay, I, you know, this feels right. We set a phone call with Macmillan for later that morning. Jody says they want to make sure we're on the same page, that we have the same vision for the series. Basically, is this a good match? Honestly, this part reminds me a lot of online dating. Here's why. At first, you're just checking out each other's profiles, their interests, their likes. Low stakes. But then you start emailing or texting. It's getting a little more serious. But then there's that crucial phone call, that are-you-a-crazy-person phone call? You're trying to sound positive and confident, but all the while you're sort of probing to make sure they're not sketchy themselves. Only, this phone call with Macmillan, this isn't a date. This is more like getting married. If I say yes, I'm committing to three books. That's years of my life. There's a lot writing on this phone call. My name is Connie Shu. I am senior editor at Roaring Brook Press at Macmillan Publishing, and I'm a children's book editor working on everything from picture books, middle grade, teen novels, some nonfiction, and also some graphic novels. Remember in the last episode when I said there were five major publishing houses? Well, it gets a little more complicated. Each of those publishing houses has imprints. There are these little subdivisions with their own brand, each with their own editors and personality. Roaring Brook is one of Macmillan's imprints. It's known for kids' books, YA, and graphic novels. If I say yes, Connie Shu will be my editor there. So I actually got your submission while on vacation. And the reason why it's important to get a really good agent is because when that agent sends something, you don't, it doesn't matter where you are, you try to read as much of it as, as fast as you can. And Jody is one of those agents. I ask her if my being a screenwriter factors into things. You know, it's, it's part of the discussion, but... Um, Right now, there are a lot of screenwriters looking into children's books, and very few of them can write children's books. You know, it's a, it's a different art form. I still got to see the writing. I still got to see if it works. I would have bought your book if you were, you know, if it came under a pseudonym and I had no idea who you were. Great. That's great to hear. Thank yeah. you very much. Last episode, we talked about imposter syndrome, that sense that you're not really any good at what you do. Connie's saying that she would have bought the book even if I were some rando off the street. That's just what I want to hear. It's also just what I want to hear. Remember, this is a first date. When I started reading it, it was really good. I would say by paragraph three, and I thought I immediately sent it out to my publisher mm -hmm. and my, my colleagues, and I said, get this on an edit meeting agenda. Um, I want to talk about it this coming week because I think that this is something really special. I actually sent it out with like a exclamation mark on it because – Sometimes these projects move incredibly fast. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was actually getting written feedback via email before I got back to the office. I just said, if you can dip in, mm -hmm. write back immediately. And I heard back from, I would say, half my group before I even finished the day. So what are you saying about Arlo Finch to them? So part of the materials we sent out in advance of the meeting include the manuscript, the agent's pitch, uh, or our own. Sometimes mm -hmm. we rewrite them. And um, a list of comparative titles. Mm -hmm. 
So what were the yeah. comparative titles for Arla Finch? Uh, I did have Percy Jackson mm-hmm. as one of them. Also, um, pseudonymous Bosch series. The, the name of this book is Secret. And um, also, because of the intelligence of the writing, um, Trenton Lee Stewart's The Mysterious Benedict Society. Great. So um, all best-selling series, mm-hmm. all full of mystery and magic. One title notably left off that list, Harry Potter. I learned later that publishers basically never put him on a list because it's such an aberration. It sets impossible expectations. Sure, they'd like the next Harry Potter, but they can't expect it. What I'm basically saying to the group is, do you think we can make this book um, comparable with these series? And fortunately, they they agreed. They really liked what they read. I asked Connie why they're making a preemptive offer now, rather than waiting to see if any other bids come in. When you spot something you really want, sometimes you don't want it to go to auction. You don't want to risk the chance of losing it to another house. And so you hope that by bringing sheer enthusiasm and um, proof of a lot of marketing and publicity support, and also a very strong offer um, that you can take it off the table. And so it means a lot. I talk with Connie for about 20 minutes. She asks me about what happens in the rest of the book and the series. We talk tone and characters and backstory. Afterwards, I call Jody Reamer back. I say, let's do it. Let's make a deal. An hour later, it's done. I'll be writing three books for Connie, each spaced a year apart. The money? Well, the money's complicated. Last episode, I talked about how authors are paid in advance. It comes in three installments. The first is when you sign the contract. The second is when you deliver the manuscript. The final one is when the book actually comes out. Altogether, I'll be making less than I would for a screenplay. But unlike a screenplay, this is for a book that will actually exist in the world. See, a thing you need to understand about being a screenwriter is that most of the work I do, it never gets seen, except by producers and studio executives. I'm writing plans for a movie, but most movies don't get made. I have 11 produced credits, but that's off of more than 30 scripts I've written. Scripts that are sitting on a shelf somewhere, unmade and often unmakeable. Arlo Finch will sit on a shelf too, but it'll be a bookstore shelf or a library shelf or some kid's bedside table. I think the thing that excites me most is, even if Arlo Finch isn't a big hit, even if it flops, it'll still be out there in the world. It's not a blueprint for making someone else's movie, it's the thing itself, and it's mine. Assuming I actually finish it. Right now, as we make the deal, it's February 2016. The first draft is due in August, which shouldn't be too hard. After all, I wrote the first six chapters in a month. I should be able to finish the rest of the book in maybe three months? I mean, I know how long it takes me to write a screenplay. Same thing, right? I would have thought that it would have been mathematical, that if a screenplay is 20,000 words and a book is 80,000 words, it should take four times as long to write a book as a screenplay. Not true. (laughs) Jonathan Stokes is a screenwriter friend of mine. He also has a middle grade series called Addison Cook. The second book just came out. It takes exponentially more time to write a book. It's factorially more difficult. I have these expectations of how much writing I get done in a day or how much writing I get done in a week. And then I'm constantly just surprised and frustrated when I feel like I've worked extremely hard all week and I'm not through act one. I'm not even close. Writing a book is, I think, 
you know, eight times or 10 times as time consuming as writing a screenplay. It's not just the number of words. Writing prose fiction is also just a lot different than screenwriting. My first draft of Addison Cook felt like a screenplay. It was really challenging for me to go from writing present tense and screenplays to writing past tense uh, for book narration. So let's make it clear for people who don't sort of understand is that almost every book you've ever read has been written in the past tense. So John ran down the field. The sky turned black um, as the thunderclouds rolled in. Mm -hmm. Um, Screenplays are written entirely in the present tense. Right. He runs, he jumps, he sprints, he turns, he fires the gun. It's all present tense. Mm -hmm. And so it bothered me in my first draft. Everything felt inherently passive voice because I was writing in the past tense. But it's not just the verb tense. In screenplays, you can only describe what the audience sees and hears. But in a novel, you could do anything. You can describe the inner thoughts of characters. You can have them think back to that night in Calcutta where they first smelled that mix of fireworks and jasmine. Every sentence could literally go anywhere. It's powerful, but it's also exhausting. You're overwhelmed by choices. I spend the next six months writing the book. Every morning, I send my daughter off to school, and I sit down to write. I work in hour-long chunks. My goal is to write about a 1,000 words per day. There's not really good audio to go with this part. Maybe if I worked at a typewriter, you could hear that. There's also a pigeon who sometimes comes to sit on the railing outside my window and stares at me. No, really, you can see him on Instagram. One thing, the book is mostly set in winter in Colorado, but I had to write the bulk of it in the middle of summer in an apartment with no air conditioning. I end up finding these tracks on YouTube, which are 12 hours of winter storm. I listen to it on my headphones. Seriously, this really helps me get into the right headspace. I finished the first draft at an outdoor cafe. There's a shot on Instagram at this moment, too. It seems impossible, but it's finally done. It's time to print. All right, this is Monday, September 26th at 9.36 p.m. I'm about to print the first draft of Arlo Finch. So I have a PDF here. I'm going to hit Command-P. So frustratingly, it seems like it's only able to print 22 pages at a time, and it says out of memory. So I'm searching for a solution. This is going to sound obvious, but I feel like maybe one of the downsides of buying the cheapest printer on Amazon is that the cheapest printer on Amazon doesn't actually print that well. The first draft is 62,843 words. That's about right for middle-grade fantasy fiction. See, Harry Potter is an anomaly here, too. The first book was reasonable, 76,000 words. The Order of the Phoenix, though, 257,000. But for Arlo, contractually, I'm supposed to deliver between 50 and 70,000 words, so I'm right on target. I asked Jonathan Stokes how long his book is. The first book is 62,000 words. The second book is currently 82,000 words. So that's a very classic pattern. So the first book is long, but not crazy long. The second book is a more substantial commitment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jonathan and I are both writing middle-grade fantasy series with boy heroes. His first book is Addison Cook and the Treasure of the Incas. Mine is Arlo Finch in the Valley of Fire. Basically, first name, last name, and the something of something. Does that sound familiar? You might think it started with Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, 
or Sorcerer's Stone in America, but it actually goes back much further. I grew up with the three investigators in The Mystery of the Screaming Clock and Encyclopedia Brown and The Case of the Sleeping Dog, but Harry Potter did something new. Something that I think that uh, J.K. Rowling broke ground on in a wonderful way is that Harry Potter is serialized rather than episodic. And when I was growing up, the kids' book I re- that I were reading were episodic. You can read 50 Hardy Boy books, and they never age past age 17. For me, it was The Three Investigators, and they never aged up. And it was, it was great, but now it seems absurd that there was no serialization between them. Right. We care so much more about Don Draper after seven seasons than we do a Law & Order character or something. Take a stroll through a bookstore, and you'll see that middle-grade adventure series have become sagas. Percy Jackson, Magnus Chase, Artemis Fowl. There are characters with unlikely names who grow up. They change. We take that for granted now, but 20 years ago, when J.K. Rowling published Harry Potter, it was almost unprecedented. For example, in the Chronicles of Narnia, yes, the kids cross back and forth into a fantasy world, and they do age up. But C.S. Lewis wasn't really planning the books as an ongoing series. Even now, fans debate which order you should read them. But J.K. Rowling had the whole series mapped out from the start. Over the course of seven books, Harry and his friends age seven years. They go through puberty, some graduate. Spoiler, some of them die. If middle grade fiction is meant for 8 to 12-year-olds, who is Harry Potter for? We'll get into that next. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Nelson, have you ever read Harry Potter? No, I haven't. And I, and I haven't seen any of the movies either. Tess, have you ever read Harry Potter? I have never read a Harry Potter, no. I don't know anything about Harry Potter. I've never read a Harry Potter uh, book. I've never watched one of the Harry Potters on television when it's been, you know, rerun. So not knowing anything about it, I'm curious just how much has sort of seeped into your consciousness. So what is the name of the school that Harry goes to? School for Wizarding? Something. I'm sure it's longer than that. The magic school. <laughs> I have no idea. Hogwarts? Okay, that's, you've now about summed up what I know about Harry Potter. (laughs) So who is the principal character in the Harry Potter saga? Harry Potter. Who are the other main characters in Harry Potter? 
Okay. Uh, so there's Harry. There's the boy with the red hair, whose name I don't know off the top of my head. And then there's uh, Hermione. 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 There's the uh, the one that Rupert Grint plays. I can't remember his name. Mm-hmm. There's the one that Emily Watson. No, Emily. That's only Watson. That would be great if it was her. Uh, Herm- Hermione. Hermione. Um, that is probably all I could tell you about the characters. I know there's like I I, I would do it more in like because I've never seen the films, but I've obviously seen images of the films. So I know there's like Alan Rickman as a as a bad person, baddie, mm-hmm. and Rafe Fiennes as another bad person. That's about it. Dumbledore. Someone called Dumbledore. Starts with a D. Dumbledore? Oh, and who is that principal villain of the story? If you said it, I'd know it immediately. It's just, it doesn't come to mind. <laughs> Voldemort? Yes! There you go. Ray Fiennes. Bald head. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Voldemort. It's not coming. Vol... Demar? Who wrote Harry Potter? J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling. What do you know about J.K. Rowling? Didn't have two nickels to rub together, wrote the, the Harry Potter books, sitting in a tea room, pub, something of that sort, um, and is now worth a great deal of money. In 1995, Joanne Rowling wrote her first draft of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. In the U.S., it's retitled Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone because Americans love magic but hate philosophy. Her book was rejected by eight publishers who probably feel pretty dumb right now. Bloomsbury bought the book, paying her an advance of 2,500 pounds. They also asked her to use a pen name that was more gender neutral, so boys wouldn't be put out reading a book written by a woman. The K in JK? That's made up. Joanne Rowling doesn't have a middle name. She borrowed the K from her grandmother Kathleen. I asked Connie about authors who use initials rather than their first name. So are most initial people women who are trying not to seem like women on the cover of the book? Yes. That's so crazy. So what is behind that sort of weird sexism? Is it because kids don't want to buy a book by a female author? There is this belief that boys don't read girl books. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, um, J.K. Rowling, right? I wonder what how the sales would have been if if they had been under her original name. Who knows? But um, they're... That that pervasive belief isn't just coming from the book industry. It comes from parents, and it comes from just our our society in general. I I don't think I would ever ask an author to change their name, but if an author said to me, I have a feeling my books may do better if I went with my initials, I would let them. Uh, That's why I picked August as my last name, because it makes it very, very easy. So uh, (laughs) uh, that's not even my original last name. Uh, My original last name is this unpronounceable German name, and so between... Uh, college and uh, graduate school, I took my dad's middle name as August just because I knew it was going to be simpler for everyone and there wouldn't be this question of how to pronounce my unpronounceable. It is a very nice name and it also is memorable. Later, when J.K. Rowling decided to write crime novels, she used the pen name Robert Galbraith. She didn't want her young readers reading these books. Me, I've written some R-rated movies and will probably write more. I asked Connie whether I should be thinking about that. Would Arlo Finch work better under a pen name or... Maybe my initials? You know, it's really up to you because, um, I, for instance, the name John August, it's memorable, but it's not so specific that yeah. people would just attribute, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, your, your sort of more mature works. And also, even if they're more mature works, they're not so 
I guess. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you worked on John. No, I, 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 my, my only other well, it's not porn. As far as books, my only other credit is the novelization of Natural Born Killers. Please don't read it. It's terrible. But I do have short stories that are worth reading. And my first movie, Go, is pretty darn good. It's also definitely not for kids. Yo, man, I told you, my mother's mother's mother was well, mother's black. mother's mother's mother. This ain't Ruth's mother. <laughs> now, I want to see a picture of this Nubian princess. Okay? Yeah, I want to see a picture of my mother's mother. If you were any less black, you would be clear. Look, writers can obviously write in more than one genre. And I think readers are more sophisticated than we give them credit for. Roald Dahl, he wrote children's fiction like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but also horror and more adult stuff. They're not going to get shelved together. In the end, I decided to just stick with John August. It's my name, and it would be too confusing to try something new. It's December 2017. I'm in London for a special exhibition called Harry Potter, A History of Magic. It's put on by the British Library. The idea is to look at the historical antecedents of various spells and creatures and how they influenced Rowling's book. The exhibit is beautifully designed, but I find myself more interested in looking at the crowd. They range from the proverbial 8 to 80, and they speak a bunch of different languages. Which maybe isn't so surprising. The movies are global blockbusters, and the books have been translated into 73 languages. Dean Parvati said that in the last room, they have a case where they show the book covers from all the different international editions. It's not just the title that changes. In a lot of cases, the artwork changes as well. The Italian cover of Philosopher's Stone has Harry playing chess with a rat. The Icelandic cover seems to show a drunken middle-aged Harry throwing himself in front of the Hogwarts Express. And German Harry Potter kind of looks like an asshole. I originally thought that books got translated only after they became hits. It turns out that process starts much, much earlier. Right after I turned in my first draft, the international sales team at Writer's House begins sending out the book to foreign publishers. It's just like selling the book the first time, only now there's a central event, the Bologna Children's Book Fair. Held each spring, it's like the con of kids lit. Most of the major deals are made there. For Arlo Finch, we secure international deals for Denmark, Sweden, Germany, France, Norway, Poland, Brazil, Italy, Romania, Israel, and the Netherlands. That's really good for a first-time author. And again, I can't help but wonder about the Harry Potter effect. Do they want the book, or do they want to make sure they don't miss out in case it becomes the next Potter? For the record, I don't think I've written the next Harry Potter, but each of these deals is a relationship. If they have unrealistic expectations, that's a recipe for heartbreak. I meet with my French publisher in Paris. We have champagne and pastries. We make the goodness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, she, she loves me. I point out that for Harry Potter, the book translators made choices that stuck with the whole series, including the movies. For example, in Harry Potter, there's a reference to a book written by Newt Scamander. In French, they changed his name to Norbert Dragonneau. So now, in the movie of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, that character is still called Norbert Dragonneau. An even bigger factor are the made-up words, like Muggle and Quidditch and Horcrux. Translators have to come up with things that feel right in each language. 
I asked my French publishers about that process. We send a text to some of them to do um, a test, okay. just to make sure that the translation would fit what we're expecting from the text. Okay. Because sometimes, you know, you, you never know. Are there any things in Arlo Finch that automatically make you think like, okay, that's going to be an interesting translation problem? Thunderclap. Thunderclap, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah you got to find the mm -hmm. right... I think it's going to be tricky, mm -hmm. yeah because it's very visual mm -hmm. and everything related to the parallel universe, you know, like yes. you need to... But, yeah. And the ranger. Yeah, yeah the like ranger, that's the thing, because you call yeah. them scout and rangers, mm -hmm. but we only call them scout in France, but it's a bit, I would Different. say, old-fashioned yeah. in some yeah. way, yes. you know, so we need to make... The, the you need to make a new word, yeah. It's a bit religious in France. Yeah, it is, they are more religious yeah. here. Yeah, so it's something else, so we have to... It's to be like intriguing. Mm. Range it works very well. Yeah. I just don't really know how we're going to work on it. I don't know. Yeah. Meanwhile, my editor Connie has read the first draft. Her notes come on a Sunday night, but I don't open them until Monday. My friend Nima is standing by with me on Skype as I read through them. I'm a little terrified, so I thought maybe I'd get you on the line and we would like talk through, through my uh, experience of it. <laughs> sure. Cool. Uh, let me actually find it, and we will open it together. I already opened it. Oh, all right. So uh, I peeked. You peeked. Okay, don't. <laughs> but I'll pretend like I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Cool. <laughs> October sixteenth, twenty sixteen. First draft notes. Dear John, you've created a rich, original, and exciting story with a layered world full of depth and surprises, and we're just scratching the surface in book one. Knowing your experience in screenwriting and teaching screenwriting, I've had confidence that this first draft would be good. Even so, I wasn't prepared for how strong this came in. This was an editor's dream draft, a true gem. Thank you for your hard work and deeply thoughtful story development. Well, that's a good first paragraph. Uh, I would say so, yes. <laughs> that's great. Uh, as you know, I had my assistant, Megan, also read this draft and contribute some thoughts of her own. I'm also hopeful that, given the strength of this first draft, we're looking at one more round of revisions and maybe a quick round of polishing before the manuscript is ready for copy editing, which means we should be able to stay on schedule and also begin to talk about book two, which I'm already eager to, eager to read. All my best, Connie. So that last paragraph is like, I turned this in about a month late. And so there's this concern <laughs> that I was going to fall off schedule completely. So, uh, yeah. so that, that's promising. She doesn't think it's, it's around. So, so far, that's pretty good. That's a good. That's pretty, pretty great, I would say. So that's a good, yeah. first, that's a good first, first page. There's, there's, I would say in studio notes that you get on scripts, there's always that like, oh, this is really promising, blah, 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 blah. But it's usually just like one paragraph. So it's nice that uh -huh. they give you three paragraphs <laughs> to bring you up. That's great. <laughs> Before we get into it. All right. Uh, oh, now, I didn't realize this was so long. So you look at the file, it's like, oh, it's just like a page or two. But no, this is like, wow, there's so many pages to this. There's a lot of pages and a lot of word. Like this is pretty, pretty dense. This is pretty dense. To be, to be fair, like uh, you know, uh, that's their job. <laughs> it is their job. It is their job to do this. Stuff. Yeah. Turns out I didn't need to be worried. Her notes aren't scary. There's stuff to work on, but nothing crazy. One of the things she wants to look at is Arlo's closest female friend in the book, Indra. She's smart, daring, and headstrong. Basically, our reader's going to think she's too much of a well. Her mind. I call Connie. Uh, can we talk about Indra and sort of the Hermione problem? Yeah, yes, of course. My friend Quinn put it this way. It's like, it feels like if you have a strong girl in middle grade fiction, she's going to come off like a Hermione kind of regardless. Mm -hmm. In some ways, Hermione is 
the girl in middle grade fiction who hangs with the boys and there's not sort of a, this is sort of the nature of what you get. I, I hesitated on that comment to, to share with you because I, I, I knew that, that, you know, there was, there was nothing, no connection between the two characters, but I was worried that readers would draw those connections. I think what needs to happen is if you, it's about developing Indra a bit more in her own unique ways. Okay. It's also, I think part of the challenge is the degree to which people might approach this book thinking like, oh, it's like an American Harry Potter. Naturally, they're going to think like, oh, Arlo is sort of like Harry. And then they think like, oh, and the, the girl must be like a Hermione. They're going to look for like reasons that she's like a Hermione. And Wu is sort of like a Ron. There's a natural sort of like pattern matching, I think, that happens when you're reading yeah. a book. And people are going to put people in slots. And that's naturally going to happen. And it does happen. One of the early reviews singles out, quote, the requisite boy and girl sidekicks. It also compares the Alpine Derby, which is a real thing I took from Boy Scouts, to the Triwizard Tournament in the Goblet of Fire. It gets me thinking, how much like Harry Potter does something have to be to be, quote, like Harry Potter? For example, Arlo Finch is not an orphan. He lives with his family, including his sister. He goes to an ordinary public school, by foot, not by magical train. He doesn't cast spells or use a wand. And there really aren't any adults like the professors of Hogwarts. If anything, it feels like a strangely adult-free existence. Still, I get why people make the comparison. He's an ordinary boy who discovers the world is far from ordinary. He's an underdog who is clearly destined for something big, like Luke Skywalker, or Percy Jackson, or Harry Potter. Being compared with the biggest kid's book in publishing history is a double-edged sword. It definitely breaks through the clutter. Everyone knows what Harry Potter is, but it sets an impossibly high bar. Connie, for one, is just not having it. I'm not going to say this is the next Harry Potter, and that's just way overshooting it because what happens is people don't take the book seriously. That's one, because everybody wants the next Harry Potter. You don't even need to say that. And um, it, it sort of evokes an eye roll from, from our, both sales and booksellers. And also, it's just not realistic. Those things you can't plan for. doesn't matter what marketing, publicity, sales initiatives you put together. Some things are just pop culture zeitgeist, and you just let it happen. But there's one group who is happy to hear any comparisons to Harry Potter. For them, Arlo Finch isn't a book. It might be a franchise. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Harry Potter is one of the biggest book series in history. It's also one of the biggest movie franchises ever. Altogether, the films have made almost $8 billion at the box office worldwide. 
that's before home video and toys and merchandise, it's a juggernaut. While the books were successful on their own right, you really can't talk about Harry Potter without talking about Hollywood. And here's where I have a strange connection to the series. A lot of my work as a screenwriter has been adapting books into movies, books like Harry Potter. All the Harry Potter films have been adapted by the same screenwriter, Steve Clovis. Except for one, the fifth film in the series, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. So why the change? Well, Steve Clovis is also a director, and he had decided to direct a different movie. So he stepped aside from writing Order of the Phoenix. That's when I got a call. Would I be interested in writing the script? I had just done Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for the same studio, so I was on their shortlist. Pretty quickly, the decision was between me and another screenwriter, Michael Goldenberg. I pitched my take on how to adapt a 700-page book and how to best use one of my favorite villains in the whole series, Dolores Umbridge. I met with producer David Heyman, various executives, the head of the studio. The whole process took about three weeks. In the end, the job went to Michael Goldenberg. It's okay, we're still friendly. But man, I would have loved to have written that movie. Not just because it's a high-profile job, but it's also a really interesting challenge. To me, book five is the transition point where Harry and his friends are really on their own, with no grown-ups there to save them. In one sequence, they're impersonating adults And you buy it because, really, they're not just kids anymore. But if they're not kids, is it still kids lit? I ask Connie what she thinks. So Harry Potter, over the course of the seven books, would you say, is it still middle grade fiction at the end? Or has it moved into YA? It's moved into YA. Okay. And it, you know, again, it goes to content issues. Like, I think uh, the violence got a little bit more graphic. And um, the the sort of behavior of the adults became more atrocious mm. and, and, um, and I, th- and also romance. Yeah. So the, the very beginnings of romance is very middle grade, but when you get into, you know, um, Harry having a full on girlfriend with Ginny mm-hmm. like that, that is teen. Harry Potter is a wildly successful book series that became a hugely profitable movie franchise, but that's not always guaranteed to happen. After Harry Potter, The second biggest fantasy series is probably Percy Jackson. If you haven't heard of it, odds are you don't have a 10-year-old in your house. My guess is you would have heard of it if the movie had done better. There are 12 Olympian gods. Big three are the brothers Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. That's Pierce Brosnan. He's a minotaur in a wheelchair. The children of these gods were half human, half gods. Hey, Mom. I thought this school was supposed to make things better. Someday it'll all make sense. Percy Jackson? We need to talk. The movie version of Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief came out in 2005. It was directed by Chris Columbus, the same guy who did the first two Harry Potters. But it didn't do nearly as well as Harry Potter, and it got mediocre reviews. They made one sequel, but there are no plans for more. It's hard to say the movies hurt the books, but they certainly didn't launch Percy Jackson into the stratosphere of popular culture. The book's author, Rick Riordan, has said he's never seen the movies, and has asked teachers not to show them in class. Now, I've never met Rick Riordan, but I feel for him. I know what it's like to have a version of your work out there that you don't like. I have my name on movies that didn't turn out anything like I hoped. That's part of the reason why I started writing Arlo Finch, so I could have real control over it. For once, every word was going to be the one I wanted, not one that made it through a committee. From the moment I started writing the book, one of the first questions I got was, so, Is there going to be a movie? And yeah, it feels like Arlo Finch could be a movie, 
or a series like Stranger Things. In fact, the same day we send out the original proposal to publishers, we get phone calls from producers and studios. Would I be interested in selling the film rights? I say no, at least not yet. Let me actually write the book first. I don't want people snooping around, so we go on lockdown. Every draft I turn into Connie is watermarked and password protected. For a few months, we manage to keep it locked down. But then we go out to foreign publishers. Everything is watermarked, but still, it leaks out. David Kramer, my future agent, he starts getting phone calls. So we're in this situation where now it started to slip out, and I'm getting a lot of calls. So, so here's the situation we're in, which is now people are saying, we, we're interested. We want to meet with John. We want to talk to John. What's he want to do? We want to option the rights to this series of books. And very often, most of the time, when Hollywood producers come calling, that's the holy grail for, for, for a writer you know, of books to get their, their, their book optioned by, by a Hollywood producer. Jody Reamer has been getting the same calls. Sometimes you want an early sale, a film sale, because you want to get buzz for the books. You know, that can really help the promotion of books. It gives, you know, the house something more, the publishing house, something more to promote. I don't feel that's necessary for you. Um, This is a big series for Macmillan. They're pushing it regardless. They don't need film buzz to push it. They know also you're a screenwriter, so that's going to come down the pike at some point. As an agent, when we get calls about something that people want to buy, of course, we get excited. But I also know how much you've said to me that you want to keep this process pure, that you don't want to be writing the book knowing that one day you'll be writing the screenplay for this producer or this studio. I completely get it and respect it, and I'll, 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 I'll kind of keep chomping at the bit here, but, but I understand that's what you want to do. Seth Graham Smith, the guy who wrote Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, he's sold three books to Hollywood. I ask him what he thinks. Okay, well, my advice would be, to you and to any author is to hold on to the rights for as long as possible and give yourself a seat at the table if and when you do decide to sell them. Because as the author, you control that piece of intellectual property. You are the sole proprietor of that idea, of that book. And there are no producers attached, there's no director attached, there's no star attached. And so you have all the power right now. The power to say no is honestly kind of new to me. As a screenwriter, I'm usually chasing projects, trying to get work, trying to convince someone more powerful that I'm the guy they want. But I take his advice. I say no. Still, there's one producer who is more persistent than the rest. His name is Wick Godfrey. He produced Twilight and The Maze Runner, among other movies. He wants to get on the phone with me to pitch his case for why it makes sense to sell the rights now. First and foremost, congratulations on the book, which I just think is a phenomenal achievement. I loved it. I loved it, loved it, loved it. I mean, you know, just reading it for me, it was like this this experience of feeling like this is the American version of what Harry Potter was for Brits. Like, I just feel like this, if, if anyone were to tackle um, a sort of a world and a fantasy world that was sort of uniquely American, I feel like you chose the perfect way in. I just thought it was awesome. Like, oh, thank loved you. It. Thank you very much. I asked Wick how he even got a copy of the manuscript. He wasn't quite sure, but his book scout, Jacqueline, had been tracking it for months. I was on set in Atlanta with Elizabeth, and Jacqueline called and said, I just got a copy of the manuscript. Elizabeth is Elizabeth Gabler. She runs Fox 2000, part of the film studio. 
and she's like, I'm diving into it. Oh my gosh. Like, please, like, you know, I'm going to send it to you. Start reading it if you can. Um, cause she was so enthusiastic, um, from the very beginning. She also was talking to the book scouts at Fox 2000 who also, you know, had a copy and they were reading it at the same time. And we're already emailing Elizabeth telling her we got, you know, John August's book, you know, manuscript and we're diving into it. I tell Wick that I'm excited he likes the book seriously, but I don't want to be thinking about the movies while I'm still trying to write these books. I just want to keep my head clear. That's all well and good, but I also, I know this town and everyone, you know, the the pressure will come from somebody. I don't want to be in the position where I sit back and and accept that if somebody else is, on the other hand, like making extreme overtures that then convince them. So yeah. one thing I, I would love to do, having been through this, is at least talk about the timeline of a of a successful book series as it maps up to a successful movie series and how the sort of parallel track development can very much benefit the the future sales of future books if you're already in the process of working on the movies. Wick lays out a theoretical timeline for the Arlo Finch movies. Say I start writing the script immediately. We're two drafts in before the first book comes out. Then they start looking for a director, they do preliminary casting and location scouts. Six months later, if the books are a hit, the studio gives the green light. We go into production. Now, Arlo Finch wouldn't be quite as visually effects-heavy as the Harry Potter films, but there's still a lot to do. Then, fall 2019, the first movie comes out, right between books two and three, and they'll need to move quickly on the next movie because young actors, they grow fast. By the time I'm done talking to Wick, I'm exhausted. But I can see why Hollywood is so exciting for authors. Writing books is a slog. You spend your days wrestling with sentences. Movies seem like magic. They happen largely without you. But usually I'm on the other side of this divide. I'm the one getting sent these books to adapt. And I can tell you that most books never become movies. I could be writing another screenplay that sits on a shelf. That's the last thing I want to do. Jody Reamer agrees. The books for me are the priority. You want the books to do well. You know, you don't want to have the books suffer because you get sidetracked by the film world. Jonathan Stokes thinks of it just like Harry Potter. Do I think the Harry Potter movie, movies are as good as the books? No, I don't think anyone would say, suggest that. But I think Warner Brothers bent over backwards to include J.K. Rowling and to be faithful to those books. So, yeah, I think you'll be in such a better position of power creatively if your books are successful and then you auction off the rights. And that's my plan. For now, Arlo Finch is just a book. It might be smart to get out ahead of it, to sell the rights, to be on track to time the movies with the books like Wick says. But I could just as likely be spinning my wheels writing a movie that will never get made. Most of all, I don't want to be writing the books worrying about how I'm going to adapt them. This whole thing started on a phone call with Kenneth Opal, when I was talking to him about adapting his book into a movie. It feels like a good time to call him back. One of the things I'm still trying to figure out is what is success? Um, because you look at, uh, there's the the freak unicorn exceptions of like a Harry Potter or a Percy Jackson, but mm-hmm. most titles are not that. Um, and so mm-hmm. for, for you and I mean, for me down the road, what might be some metrics for what is success? Like what how do you consider something successful? Is the nest successful? Like, how do you how do you figure that out? Oh my God, success is so uh, personally defined by 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 everyone. I mean, um, you know, for some people, it's it's sales and and money. To me, okay, here's the the the, the definition for success: is for me to be able to write the book I want, um, 
and do that exclusively. Know that it will have a home and know that I will be remunerated um, in such a way that I can you know, maintain my lifestyle and keep writing the books I want to write. I figure like if, if I can do that, like I'm kind of like the luckiest guy in the world because I've always wanted to be a writer. You know, I'm never going to be like, you know, Hunger Games famous or Twilight famous or Harry Potter famous. But, you know, I have a following and, um, you know, a critical regard and I can do exactly what I want to do. That to me is, is the success. From Wondery, this is episode two of eight of Launch. To hear episodes three through eight of Launch, listen exclusively with Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus for more exclusives, binges, early access, and ad-free listening. Available in the Wondery app. Launch is written and hosted by John August. This episode was produced by Gina Delvac and Megan McDonald. Original theme music by Ma. The executive producers are Ben Adair and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Special thanks to Kenneth Opal, Jonathan Stokes, BJ Novak, and other writers who gave great advice for this episode. Alex Ryder is back. Hello, Alex. You have a lot of work to do. To face his greatest challenge yet. We have an active threat. They can wipe out an entire city. People are going to die. Now he's running out of time. We have three days to find and destroy. He doesn't know who he can trust. You're not your enemies. You never have been. Everything I've been told has been lies. And our future is in his hands. The truth can be complicated. On April 5th... This weapon is capable of inflicting 100,000 deaths in a heartbeat. The danger is everywhere. Scorpio are no longer hiding in the shadows. The battle threatens everyone. It's personal. It's revenge. It's kill or be killed. That's when you find out what you're really capable of. And his choice could change everything. I'm sick of being manipulated to do what everyone else wants. Tell him the truth, all of it. The world isn't black and white. All we really have are the people we trust. Alex Ryder, season three, streaming free April 5th. Stream seasons one and two free now.